Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So, you know, to be separate from, right, we need some definition of our separateness. And the language many of you might have heard references, we need a boundary, right? We need a limit where my physical body and comfort with closeness, with touch, you know, begins and ends. How close am I? How comfortable am I with someone getting physically close to me, right? With touching me, with keeping my body in that kind of physical realm of safety, right? Where my nervous system isn't going to activate. We have the same sort of limits with our emotional world, right? How much we feel safe to share in what relationships, that give and take of receiving support that we were talking about. And same thing spiritually, right? We have limits and separation between what makes me, me, unique, and the differences in your self-expression. Friends, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I bring you a conversation with Dr. Nicole LaPera, otherwise known as the holistic psychologist on all social media platforms. Dr. Nicole is gracing us with her third appearance on The Better Show. The first time that she came on was to discuss her number one New York Times bestselling book, How to Do the Work. And she joins us this week to talk about her latest book, How to Be the Love You Seek. And it is all about relationships. So we start talking about how love can be difficult for very driven, very ambitious, very successful women, those overachievers, those type A personalities, if you will. And we dive into some of the aspects of our childhood that may have forged that archetype. So we talk about our inner child, we talk about the ways that it shows up, what a wounded inner child might look like. We talk about some of the different archetypes of childhood trauma that go beyond ACEs or the adverse childhood events scale. We talk about people pleasing, being very uh, angry or rageful or having these sort of explosive outbursts. We talk about disassociation. We talk about being the yes person, the people pleaser, the caretaker, some of the sounding familiar yet (laughs) to some of you. Um, And then we talk about some of the ways that a healthy relationship navigates conflict. So we start talking about this in the context of fighting and what it means to be a good fighter in a relationship. And Nicole actually relabels this conflict, which I actually quite like. So we talk about how to get through a conflict with your partner because it's a part of being in a relationship. And then once you've had that conflict, what are some of the steps that you can repair your relationship? We talk about interdependence, codependency. We talk about emotional safety, being in our body, the ego and the heart and heart coherence. Gosh, it's such a juicy conversation. It's really for anybody, any any individual who is finding themselves either in a relationship or wanting a relationship or wondering why their relationships fail after time after time after time. 
spoiler, hi, it's me, the problem is me, you know, to quote um, T-Swizzle, to to quote Taylor Swift. And I think I just messed that up as well. But um, without further delay, please enjoy this conversation around relationships and how to show up in your relationship as the best version of yourself with Dr. Nicole LaPera. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right, Dr. Nicole LaPera, I'm thrilled to welcome you back Time number three. We're doing round three today on the Better Podcast. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. (laughs) I want to jump right in because I was telling you in the pre-chat, a lot of the women, there are men and women, of course, that listen to the show, but it's predominantly a female audience. We have clinicians that listen. We have, uh, you know, what I like to call my Bettys who are, you know, Mm -hmm. just on this journey of self-betterment. And a lot of my 
listeners, um, and of course you attract, you know, your vibe attracts your tribe, right? So a lot of our listeners are very driven. They're very ambitious. They might identify as that overachiever archetype, which we'll get to, uh, that you talk about in the book in terms of, um, uh, adaptations that we have from our childhood. Um, uh, maybe the word type A personality could apply there. And what I find is that many of these women are, you know, they're killing it in all, you know, when we talk about most ways that we measure success, you know, they have the accolades, they're, you know, in a career or they're, you know, you know, in a career that they love or doing very well in the career that they've chosen or the career path that they've chosen. But where they do struggle is in their personal relationships. And I was reading a stat the other day, and this is maybe a little... A uh, little bit of an extension of that, where you know women are so focused now on our careers, which is a great thing. It's a great thing to have women in the workforce and contributing. Um, and then what often happens is we start to think about families or our relationships maybe later on in life. And for some women, and I have friends of mine who have struggled with this, when they decide that they want to have children, let's say, um, their biology. And their timelines don't often meet up. And so we have, you know, and maybe this is slightly a slight deviation, but we have a lot of IVF and we have a lot of trouble with a lot of these women conceiving. And I read a stat the other day that said 80% of women who are childless are not, have not done so by choice. Um, and so uh, certainly I have friends and uh, individuals who are childless by choice, and that's fine. And we support and we love all, you know, everyone's everyone's um, life decisions. But it becomes a sadder reality when you have these women who are, as I mentioned, like in all measures of success, doing very, very well, and then really struggle to find, you know, when they are starting to think about childbearing, you know, they're not in the relationship that they feel is a safe one, or they feel is the right one, or maybe they're not in a relationship at all. So, I thought we might start um, to explore this through the lens of your work um, in terms of our childhood upbringing. And I know we'll we'll get to our conditioned selves and even how we choose mates and why we choose the mates that we choose. Um, But maybe we can start off, I know that's a long preamble, but maybe we can start off with our childhood upbringing and how that can shape, uh, particularly that overachiever archetype. Like what are some of the common through lines that you see or you used to see in clinical practice that you still see now through your healer circle and your and your and your uh, community that you lead i'm over here shaking my head um throughout your whole preamble here stephanie because there's so much that you're sharing in terms of being an overachiever and right this kind of aspect of who i've hung my identity on for so much of my life and then what happens when that's not fulfilling anymore what happens when we do discover, right, that other choices are in in alignment with us, like having families or relationships or, or what have you. And when we're not then functioning as we're used to knowing ourselves, right, I'm, I'm an achievement-driven person. I'm used to doing things right or whatever it might be. I do agree with you. I've had the same experience of that. I think of it like a, a whole. And it really did for me translate to a visceral feeling in my body kind of an absence of is the best way I would describe what that feeling reflected. And what I'm kind of getting to is what was absent and what is absent for so many of us that is created in our childhood environments is our more whole definition of ourself or who we are. That undefinable for many of us kind of essence, uniqueness, right? That thing that makes me tick a little differently than everyone else. 
that's really the most simple way we can define what a self is. Though back early on in our childhood, based on what relationships were present to us or were not present to us, based on what our environments looked like or didn't, the safety and security of that space to begin to express who we are as a different being from even those around us. When we didn't have that safety and security, we as all humans will do in beginning in childhood, we'll adapt. We're incredibly adaptive creatures. So because in that childhood, again, state of dependency, we are the one creature that we're born in an immature state, meaning a human infant can't continue life on its own outside of a relationship. So within these early relationships really becomes how we begin to define, well, I should say first, how we begin to understand and then define ourself or who we think we are. So saying that to say, so many of us begin to adapt and we like many become, or myself like many listeners and many of your Bettys become an overachievement, right? A driven person to define our identity based on these accomplishments or accolades. For me, that began in an emotionally unattuned childhood where I didn't have caregivers who were able to feel and process their own emotions. So they weren't able to create that safety and security to help me explore my end. And our emotions is a big part of what makes each of us us. So to adapt and to maintain my connection to my mom in particular, who was my primary caregiver, she was the one physically present throughout my days, caring for me, tending to my needs in childhood, I began that process of modification. So I began to know myself only through the achievements that for me was through academic-based achievements. Not surprising to hear that, you know, decades later, I was achieving a PhD level of accomplishment. Um, I understood myself through that value. So flash forward now in time and to kind of map it on while each of our childhoods look different. Um, we've adapted though in similar ways, just going with this overachiever personality, right? Who I know myself to be and the value I have in my relationships is because of how I'm performing. Right now, if in my relationships, I'm not performing, I'm not able to find or maintain these bonds and or I want to have children, right? And I'm not able to now do these things. Now what's being challenged? Who I've come to know myself to be. If I'm now stepping out of, right, that validation I used to get from all of these endless accomplishments, I mean, that's what I think was me describing that whole. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to show up for myself if I wasn't achieving something or serving another being. And again, for me, as all of us, all of these adaptations are ways that we've had to maintain safety and security in our earliest relationships. And that is why we can become very successful and adapt it in many areas, yet continue to struggle in our relationships. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting too, because when, you know, society will reward PhD levels of achievement, societies reward doctors and they reward, you know, we'll call them workaholics, right? Which mm -hmm. is a form of, you know, in many ways, it's a form of addiction, right? Um, and you talk about, you've talked about this in a couple of books in terms of um, the archetypes of trauma that go beyond ACE. So these adverse childhood events, which are usually the standard, you know, there's a, I think there's a 10, it's a 10 point quiz, maybe, maybe a little more than that, where it'll ask you, you know, some of these, what m might be called big T traumas, you know, were you ever physically abused, sexually abused, some where, of course, those are all very traumatic. Um, and what I, what I like about your work and what originally drew me to your work so many years ago is your uh, expansive definition 
uh, of what, me- what might be traumatic um, for a child. Um, I've heard Gabor Mate talk about the idea that it's not necessarily the trauma, like the event itself, but it's actually the response that the child or the individual has to the trauma, has to the event that creates, uh, you know, maybe it's disassociation, maybe it's fear, maybe it's anger, maybe it's people pleasing, or, and we'll get into some of those in a moment, but I, maybe just to sort of, um, start us off, uh, what are some, um, ways that a, a child can experience trauma, let's say, in a, in a, in, you know, as a child that are beyond, let's say, ACE. So we're going to kind of set aside the big T trauma. What are some ways that our parents don't attend to our needs? You already said a little bit about what you're, you know, you're talking about your own uh, experience, um, but maybe just to sort of paint that picture and then we can tuck in a little bit to the, um, some of the archetypes of childhood as well that develop. So even beginning with the ACE scale and just using myself when I, you know, met this instrument that's been validated in my field to, you know, kind of assess these traumatic moments. And the research even went as far to say that at that point it was validating the wherever in life, if in early life we've had an accumulation of these traumatic moments, again, defined by this very one scale, it kind of began to show research that is that we carry that effect with us. It's not just going to impact us in that environment. Many of us can somewhere down the line see impacts in our physical and our emotional health. And again, I'm simplifying all the different impacts that it has, but just to those two categories. So, of course, when I meet this as a clinician, I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, data, this is showing, you know, I came from a psychodynamic program, which really just means we were taught that childhood does have an impact, even if we're past childhood age, past not living in that childhood environment. So I saw the scale. I went myself down. I think I maybe scored a one on it, which is quite low. And by that time, I was working. Um, I had worked in inpatient units. I had worked on substance um, recovery units. I had worked with, you know, people with individuals diagnosis of schizophrenia, kind of scoring very high on this this ACEs scale. And yet, what I was seeing was the same habits and coping patterns in myself. So I was left with a lot of confusion. Without, you know, when I did, I took a moment. I think as many of us do, a kind of tried to call to mind, well, maybe something did happen to me in childhood and I just don't remember it because why am I so disconnected? Why do I prefer to use substances, you know, to numb myself? Why am I hearing the same issues reflected back in clients who have a much higher ACEs scale? So I, you know, shamed myself as I think many of us do. I, you know, had that internal voice that was almost kind of rolling its eyes when I was having my moments of suffering. I was like, well, you have nothing there's nothing that happened to you, only to come to realize. So I, I really love Gabor Mate's work. Um, it's so, you know, I think it's foundationally important because it isn't just what happens outside. It is the impact and our ability more first and foremost to deal with what happened outside of us, specifically around stress. How can our bodies, how capable is our body, our mind and body to deal with stress or other upsetting emotions? And when we live a stressful event and we're capable of dealing with it, that event might not impact our mind and body as trauma. Though if we don't have that attuned caregiver, if we don't have a parent who's able to be you know, aware enough of their emotions to create that safety, to be that point of soothing co-regulation when we're upset, not to just get upset too or to not deny our upset or our feelings, as many of us heard, you're too dramatic, stop crying, right? 
uh, sadness is weak. I mean, really, the list goes on. When we don't have that emotional safety and security, everyday consistent stress can be experiences overwhelming in our body. And then when our body, our nervous system in particular, can't deal with stress, again, I'm going to simplify this, can't become stressed, right? Shift in that fight or flight mode, deal with whatever is threatening us in that moment, and then downshift, go back to peace and back to calm. When that doesn't happen, or that doesn't happen, I should say, when we don't have that safe person to help us in childhood. So that will then translate to many moments of stress become overwhelming, become traumatizing. So this can look like having a parent who shames our emotions, having a parent who's emotionally explosive themselves. So their own emotional displays, maybe they're not even directed at us, feel overwhelming. And then there's no one there to help us make sense or to soothe us when we're upset. It can look like a a boundaryless parent who for their own well-intentioned purposes, maybe based in their own childhood, is always overstepping our boundaries, micromanaging us, telling us what to think, what to feel, how to act, what to dress like, right? All of these now micro moments, if we're not able and we don't have that safety and security to deal with those stressful moments, we will then impact, we will kind of retain that adaptation because that's what we'll do. We'll find a way to create the safety and absence of it being there. And that's then generally what leads down to these archetypal uh, manifestations. We become the achiever. We become the caregiver who always is looking to someone else. We become what I call the yes person. In other words, for people pleaser. We put everyone else's needs before our own because in childhood, maybe we did have to. Maybe we're, we were parentified. Maybe we had a parent who physically couldn't show up for us. They were depressed. They were abusing substances. They weren't in the home. So before we know it, we became our parent's parent. And all of these then get impacted, get saved in our mind and body, and get manifested outward as these personalities that we are and that we behave as most often than not within our relationships. But it, it doesn't really feel good. Because it's not who we really are. And oftentimes it's how we once had to be to find and maintain safety. It's not our full self-expression, as I would call it. Yeah, and, and you talk a little bit about this idea of um, these archetypes as a strategy, we'll say, whether they're adaptive or maladaptive, you know, you can make that call. We can, you know, make that call later. But it's it's a method to almost like dissipate the stress. So like the people pleaser, for example, you know, you want to meet the demand that someone's asking you so that you can temporarily relieve that stress, that that internal sort of conflict that's happening. Someone's asking you to do something. You want you want to do it or you don't want to do it. It actually doesn't even matter whether or not you want. You just need to get rid of the demand that's been that's been placed on you. And like the anger uh, or the explosive, um, I forget the the the. I think you call it an explo- maybe an explosive uh, in the book. But if you're able to just yell, let's say, or like the person is not able to regulate their own internal environment, somehow that discharge, like somehow just like yelling and screaming just gets the energy out of you. And so there's that's another way that you've like relieved that stress, right? By yelling and then somehow it's going to go through the floorboards and then just like translate to the, you know, transmit to the other, to the other person. But it's a way for you to kind of dissipate the stress within you because you haven't been modeled let's say by your parental figure, your caregiver 
on how to deal with conflict. And so we have these different archetypes that you, that you talk about, the caretaker, the overachiever, the yes person. There's seven of them uh, that you outline in the book. Um, but I think that these are like, those are the three actually that I wanted to touch on because those are the ones that I see, um, I see in myself. Uh, I think I see, and we all, I, I should also say, um, that I think that they all exist on, on a spectrum, right? So that you have anger or rage or that you have sort of tendencies towards people pleasing. Um, and maybe you can comment on this and redirect me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but some of these adaptations in and of themselves, like wanting to be wanting to achieve things is not inherently bad, but it's the idea of if that becomes the sole identity with which you receive pleasure or positive feedback from an external source, that's when we start to kind of move along this spectrum of like normal wanting to do well into this sort of well, abnormal maybe is the word. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. I'm really happy, Stephanie, that you're kind of making that distinction here because specifically around to caring for another, right? That is that is what a relationship is, the mutual give and take of supportive presence, of supportive resources, right? Actually objectively doing something outside of holding emotional space for someone. That is why, you know, maybe listeners have heard humans referenced as wired to connect or interpersonal creatures or a social species, whatever it is, we need relationships, right? And that's one of the byproducts or values of it is this emotional support of it though yes so to speak to your point of course you know our our goal is to become a whole individual but not to withhold supportive resources from others it's actually to be able to more freely give though freedom of giving comes with also freedom of choice right and i used to find myself backed into a corner where i did feel if i didn't show up as i even imagined someone might want me to not even they didn't have to say that that's actually what they wanted. This all just happened in the arena of my mind, right? I would feel like if I didn't right show up in that way, then I would be there would be no part in the, re- the relationship for me. So I would feel backed up into a corner where to keep this relationship and this important bond and connection, I felt that there was no choice but to show up. Now, that would often mean I was overstepping my physical resources. I didn't have the time to do it, maybe on some occasions. Maybe I was overstepping my emotional resources. To be in supportive presence of someone else, we need resources. What do I mean by that? We need to be able to feel safely present, to be able to listen to what someone is saying. Our ability to be present is really a function of our nervous system states. And I love how eloquently you even picked up on fighting, right? Screaming and yelling or people-pleasing. Because I would define those as two versions of a nervous system state of reactivity. I'm feeling threatened, so now I'm yelling. I'm trying to fight or overtake the threaded hand, right? I'm feeling threatened, maybe the next ver- stop on that train, if I can't overtake it. And this is where we will see a combative person screaming and yelling. I'm reacting to a perceived threat. And there is a part of my subconscious mind in that moment that does believe that unless I yell and overtake this threat, because perhaps that's what I had to do in childhood. There was a lot of yelling. I did have to overcome things or defend myself even maybe through fighting physically, right? To keep myself safe in my environment. So all of that's imprinted. That's what I was meaning when I say there's now trauma and a belief system in my subconscious mind. So now in real time, when I perceive a threat, I might seem similarly seek to overpower. The next step then on my nervous system journey, if I can't overpower it, we will try to flee it. We might not, we might leave the room entirely. Oh, I have to go 
take care of something over there as you know the conversation's getting stressful or I'm getting uncomfortable or I might pick up my phone right and now I'm distracted right I'm distracting my attention away I'm fleeing something that I don't feel like I can deal with next stop on the journey if I can't overtake it if I can't leave it and now this applies to most of us in childhood I can't pack my bag my backpack as a kid and leave my physical environment then the final step on that journey is I I freeze. I become shut down, right? I play dead um, is the way we kind of think of it in in terms of the reptilian kingdom, right? When well, you animals- see that you see that in the savanna, right? You see the zebra or whatever trying to get away from whatever is following it, and so that's the f- flight. That's the flight part. And then once it's been maybe taken over mm-hmm. by a pack of dogs or something, it it freezes. Like it just kind of falls over and it looks yeah. like it's dead. Yeah. The thought being exactly that, right? If I'm now dead, the threat might leave itself. Yeah. Right. So all of the ways, myself included, that I would just completely shut down, right? Have a faraway look. I call it my spaceship where I was there in, in physical body, but I was somewhere else, a million miles away. I was shut down to what actually was happening in my physical body. And then the final mm-hmm. state that I just want to refer to, because we touched on it a bit, the people pleasing mode. Because we are social creatures, we've actually adapted something we can do preemptively, socially, to mitigate any possible threat by, just like you described, Stephanie, where we can be always on alert, right? For a lot of us, this looks like social anxiety, where we're always looking and scanning and looking for any indication of how we're being experienced or received by someone around me, right? Our attention is always out there, scanning, sometimes unconsciously, the wants and needs or feelings, mood shifts, of someone else so that if we do see or sense a shift toward maybe the moments in childhood where I could tell, right, when my mom was getting agitated and I knew when an explosion was coming, if I was able to do something then by removing myself, by making mom laugh, by distracting, right, by removing the threat, then I might stave off that explosion, thereby having kept me safe. And now I retain that. And then, like I said, in adulthood, it does look like this people pleasing or this yes person behavior where the only way I feel like I can be safe, right, is looking outside of myself, is finding safety by s- removing threats before they even become a threat itself. And I'm bringing those up again because some of these behaviors we see in ourselves as our mode of being, right, because we're locked, we never feel safe, we're always on edge or we're always feeling reactive. And this absolutely then applies to navigating conflict in our partnerships, Right. Conflict is a natural part of it, of humans interacting together. So all of these behaviors and reactive moments are often then what is coloring our experience of ourselves and of others in our relationship. Because so many of us, by the time we're adults, we begin to identify as these reactive moments, as these behavioral adaptations. We wear our identity right around being the yes person who's selflessly serving the world. And then again, what happens though when it is at our own expense, when we don't have those resources, when we've only defined ourselves by the ability to give, what happens when we have nothing left to give? What happens when we're shut down, right? When we're overwhelmed, then we don't feel like ourselves anymore. But I'm really happy we kind of went down this path because a lot of these explosive moments, these detached moments, whether you're on the kind of giving end, you see those in yourself or the receiving end knowing how frustrating it is to talk to someone who's a million miles away. I can imagine how that was for um, Lolly, my partner now of almost a decade. When we first met, she would look at me and go, are you there? Are you in there? Where are you? You know, how empty 
she must have felt or that relationship must have felt. How frustrating it is to be on the receiving end of someone scrolling on their phone, right? We think they're ignoring us. In reality, they might be so emotionally overwhelmed that scrolling on their phone is the only way, right, that they've learned to create safety in the moment. Similarly, we might be on the receiving end of this does not okay explosive behaviors, but we might have that person who's always agitated, who's always yelling, right? Who always has something wrong that's happened. And we might be on the receiving end somewhat of that. And of course, if it's not making us unsafe, right, we might be able to understand that they are acting in that way because actually they feel really unsafe and scared internally themselves. I I love this. And I was saying to you in the, in the pre-chat, the, um, I want to talk about healthy fighting, like, you know, constructive uh, behaviors during a conflict. And I think that at, as we can become, let's say, more aware of our own um, our own childhood and some of those adaptive strategies or maladaptive strategies that have come about, you can see how they might play out in conflict with your partner. And one of the things that, you know, this is not validated, this is just a personal opinion, I feel like one of the predictive, you know, one of the predictors, let's say, of the longevity of a couple is their ability to navigate conflict because it's when it's easy and you're in Paris and you're, you know, or wherever and it's beautiful <laughs> and it's romantic and all of that, that. It's very easy to be in a relationship like that. But uh, that is not always, that shouldn't be the expectation that someone should be always fawning over you or trying to make you happy. And understanding that there's going to be conflict. Maybe it's a parenting conflict that you and your partner might have. It might be a money conflict that you might have. It might be where to move, where to live, how to, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I was saying to you in the, in the pre-chat, you know, being a good fighter is not about like that well-timed, like gotcha <laughs> moment. You know, it's not, that's not what I mean when I say healthy fighting. I mean, um, you know, I was saying to you, like, try not to assassinate the other person's character. It's like, well, your p- opinion doesn't even matter because you're like this or, you know, trying to not even address the issue or the conflict maybe that's happening. It's like, well, when you did this, you know, in May in 1984, you know, or whatever it is, like bringing up the past, avoiding kind of the conflict in front of you. Um, I wanted to touch on that because I think that becoming a good fighter and I, I hope I'm saying this in the right way that's coming across in the right way, I think is essential, an essential skill to acquire, irrespective of your upbringing. If you're committed in a committed relationship, however that committed relationship looks, I think it's important for us to become better fighters. So can you speak a little bit about um, how healthy couples might think about conflict mitigation and maybe how the, you know, that that wounded inner child, that hurt, angry, scared, fearful inner child might show up in a conflict uh, and what we can do as a, you know, a supportive, loving other person to identify maybe what's happening in ourselves and then hopefully in our partner and not to excuse behavior, but just to un- like to have an understanding of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and whether or not listeners are resonating with the uh, concept of fighter, I could offer an, another reframe could be negotiator. And I think the foundation that's important for us all to acknowledge together, even though for some of us, this might be um, unexpected, you know, new news, even arguments, conflict, fights, if we want to call them that, are a natural part of relationships. And pause for one second there. Because for a lot of us, that that is not the belief, right? For so many of us, we have come, especially if there was highly the way conflict was navigating our childhood, especially if it was explosive, 
or not navigated at all, right? It was swept under the rug. And maybe there was never anything, quote unquote, wrong because it was never talked about in our childhood, right? So the reality of it is, though, or whether you or not Disney, <laughs> you want conflict, anything I mean, by Disney is, is a you know? huge. I mean, we yeah. are, again, what we're, what we're both kind of talking about here, Stephanie, in so many ways is the impact or conditioning, right? It doesn't just happen inside of our home. It's all of the societal messaging, all of the ways relationships or humans in general are portrayed and movies and TV are a huge way. And we've seen a great shift um, in this portrayal over time. But all of that then gets embedded in these kind of prototype ideas of what we come to think of relationships, how to relate to others, what conflict even means. So again, I want to emphasize that this goes back to the concept, or maybe this is the first time I'm introing it here, but you and I in the pre-chat um, reference interdependence, right? Which is the, when I refer to humans as being social creatures, that's another concept that's usually then referred to as we're interdependent creatures, right? Which means that, again, we all need those relationships to thrive and that there's value in separateness, in difference, right? So we think of interdependence, the, I guess, visual could be like a puzzle, right? Each piece looks a little different, yet together, Right? Silly example, but you have the whole picture, right? That highlights all of the pieces couldn't look the same or you wouldn't be able to put them together into a cohesive whole. Same thing goes with our relationships. There's so much value as we show up with different ideas, different perspectives, different lived experiences, different human emotions, different self-expressions, different creativities, right? Different essences. There's so much value when we retain those differences within our relationships because now together, right, we become strong. We become so much more whole. But again, in childhood, so we didn't have that um, experience of safety. We didn't have the ability to be celebrated um, for who we are and how we were different. So for many of us, again, we began to modify and to fit ourselves and to wash away, um, you know, that which makes each of us us in service of those connections, which are, again, our life force in, in our in our childhood and will continue to be into our adulthood. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Yeah, and I think you know, you were, you talk about this in the book around this um, attachment theory uh, and, you know, the neurobiology of belonging, which is what you're referring to now. And I was, when I was reading it, you know, there's this um, secure attachments, there's insecure attachments, there's disorganized attachments. And I, w I just remember thinking, um, gosh, did anyone, did anyone grow up with secure attachments? Like, I, you know, very few of us, I think, did. So th really did. And I, I can... Um, 
you know, even speak for myself and say that I probably had more of a disorganized attachment uh, style kind of growing up, just given the sort of uh, the environment that I grew up in, the physical and emotional sort of environment that um, that I was raised in. And I think that um, that idea of undoing, uh, or not maybe not undoing, but becoming more awake and aware to our own patterns um, can start to relay you can start to sort of lay down the foundation for this interdependence rather than codependence, which is what so many of us, I think, um, you know, from you complete me, you're watching like Jerry Maguire's and like the social, like any rom-com that you've ever watched the Disney movies, as I was saying, and then what was modeled for us in the home. I think there's a lot, there's more of a tendency for this codependent, uh, relationship where you are become, uh, I, I believe the correct term is enmeshed with the other person. Like you, your sense of identity, your sense of worth is so entangled with how the other person views you rather than having your own sort of internal GPS, if you will. Um, so speak a little bit about what are some of the ways that we can move from having a tendency, mo- I would say, I would... I could be wrong here, but I would argue that most of us might have more of a tendency towards codependence rather than interdependence. Um, You talk about embodiment and what that, you know, how we can, how we can embody something, um, body, mind, and soul. And I would love for you to speak a little bit about each of those three pieces and then like what embodiment, what embodiment actually means. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to be separate from, right, we need some definition of our separateness and the language many of you might have heard references. We need a boundary, right? We need a limit where my physical body and comfort with closeness, with touch, you know, begins and ends. How close am I? How comfortable am I with someone getting physically close to me, right? With touching me, with keeping my body in that kind of physical realm of safety, right? Where my nervous system isn't going to activate. We have the same sort of limits with our emotional world, right? How much we feel safe to share in what relationships, that give and take of receiving support that we were talking about. And same thing spiritually, right? We have limits and separation between what makes me, me unique and the differences in your self-expression. So when we don't have that safety and that security or boundaried, you know, kind of relationships in our childhood, we will become those, those limits, those separations will become blurred and we won't be able to be who we are. And this, I want to tie this back to fighting as well um, and be a little more clear too on how all of this and what I kind of, what the next step is. Okay. If conflict is natural, well then how can we engage with it? Because a bot, right. Conflict is natural. Conflict is us trying to navigate differences, right? Assuming that we have differences or the space or the safety to have differences in our opinion. So once we understand that conflict is not natural, we do have to then understand how to navigate it. Understanding, like we just acknowledged, that we're going to re- rely back on what we learned in childhood. How was conflict navigated? Was it explosive? Was it rushed under the rug? Did we have tools? And even back to kind of this idea in terms of navigating conflict, I want to add into the definition of navigating conflict, the step of repair, which happens oftentimes after right the conflict has happened. So it's not only natural that conflict will happen, those moments of differing opinions, right, where some of us get activated, our body becomes to, you know, becomes part of the story, right, our heart rate elevates, we might see ourselves shifting into those fight, flight, or freeze moments, then what happens afterwards? Because research now kind of verifies that it's not just how conflict in those heated moments are navigated, 
it's those moments of repair. And those moments of repair actually foundationally critically important to develop the safety and the security in a relationship because we can't remove conflict entirely. But we what we can do is to develop the tools to navigate those moments of disagreement without shifting into those explosive fight, fright, or freeze moments of reactivity to remain more grounded, more curious, more able to hear someone else's perspectives, feelings, their self-expression, hold space for it, even when it's at odds with what you're thinking, wanting, needing, wanting to express in that moment. So can we have a space where all of that happens in a grounded, intentional, conscious way? Because when we're still conscious, we can retain focus on a future, on long-term outcomes, on the fact that I care about this person. I don't want to annihilate them by character assaulting, right? We can be together as a team. And when we're in those reactive moments of, of conflict, fight, fighting, or freeing, fleeing, we're actually not acting as a team at all. We're not able to negotiate at all because now we're in a survival-driven part of our brain, which actually deletes the other individual as being someone that we love and care about and makes them just our point of opposition, the threat that's between us and the safety that we need to create. So that's why so many of us in those conflictual moments, and again, this is not condoning or okaying this. This is just giving an awareness. Of course, the goal is to not become shaming and critical and domineering and overpowering, even sometimes abusive. But that is why we are so dehumanizing, myself included, in those reactive moments, because the human isn't a human anymore. They're not the loved one that you want to go to bed to and build a go to bed with at night and build a future with. They are, again, the threat between you and between your safety. So if we can learn how to, right, not shift into that survival-driven part of my brain, how to self-regulate or co-regulate, create safety so that we don't have to turn our loved one, right, into our opposition, then we can begin to become curious about why we're hearing or experiencing something different. And we can act as a team to negotiate. And then that applies to those moments of repair, of conversation after the fact where there's whatever the point of issue was, it's discussed, it's explored, it's the impact on both parties is given airtime and is heard. And now the two individuals right, can sit together. I like to paint this visual as I once did for the, the couples I used to work with on the same couch, right? Looking at the issue that's, you know, for both of them to deal with, not the hot potato blame game that so many of us, right, attempt to. So all of this, again, the reason why I wanted to emphasize and go back to this, if we can't do that and create separation and we don't feel safe and secure to even explore our points of difference, then we very well might be continuing to recreate those enmeshed or codependent dynamics from our childhood where I get my needs met based on how you are showing up for me or not, how you are feeling about me or not, how you are feeling on your own or not, right? If I'm that helper, that caretaker, I get all my value by keeping you cared for and happy. It actually has nothing to do with me at all and where my limits of separation or my resources are, right? So all of these get really interconnected. And the reason why I'm laboring this point is because, and continuing to go back to our nervous system, because our nervous system plays a foundational role in our ability to be authentically self-expressed, in our ability to be authentically self-expressed more so within our relationships with other different humans. And this then to bring it full circle is why so few of us have the resources to navigate interpersonal relationships in adulthood because we were all raised by imperfect humans 
who are impacted by their childhood environments, by the resources that were accessible or inaccessible to them, by how their caregivers showed up and what information they had available that they were showing up right in action around. And the list goes on by the social political context of the day. And again, really the factors of impact continue, but they impact, right? So now we literally, and I've yet to find a human who was raised by fully emotionally mature and attuned caretakers, because a lot of us are still living the impact of past generations who didn't have resources, who didn't have this information, who actually some of them had opposing information. I often like to reference, it took a long time in the field, even of psychology, and in many ways, we're still leaning into and learning about emotions and emotional needs and how to actually show up, right, as an emotionally attuned human being and what choices that we even have control over to impact our emotional worlds with the field really coming a long way from believing solely in genetics that we had no control. <laughs> it's just outside of our control and we're literally like plants in a lab to wait a minute. We actually are co-creators, right? It is not just a model of the genetics determine everything. We are in interaction with our environment with other individuals included. So saying that to say very few of us as adults have the skills needed to navigate relationships. We don't know how to navigate conflict in relationships. And very few of us know how to even be ourselves in relationships because we're still relying on those age-old survival strategies. There's still a belief embedded in our subconscious mind and body that believes we are only worthy in one way, by achieving, by caretaking, by just pleasing the whole world around us at our own expense, right? All of that is so alive and back to the concept embodied that we are reacting as if that is our current reality, even though we've left that relationship for so many of us decades ago. So how, what would be some... You know, if we can give our listeners some actionable items in terms of, all right, you just had this, you know, fight, conflict, argument, some kind of uh, conflict with your partner. What are some what are some steps that we might think about taking to come back together? You know, Giovanni and I always have this saying. I think I've shared this with you before. We always want to protect the bubble. All right, so we're going to have conflict in the bubble. There's going to be conflict, but we always want to protect the bubble so that it doesn't pop, right? So that now we're not, you know, as you had said, you know, now we're not looking at each other as the person that we love and want to spend the rest of our lives with, but it's like, you are threatening my safety. Um, I can share uh, one of the things that um, he started doing first. I wish I could claim it, but I won't. I'll give credit where it's due. He would, you know, after a conflict, he would always come to me and like just affirm how much he still loved me. He was like, I just want you to know you're the love of my life. I'm so sorry we had this argument and, you know, and what, you know, and then we would start talking about it, but he would always start with that piece of affirming his love for me. And for whatever reason, I don't know if he just innately knew that that's what I needed to hear because in my overachieving, like super extreme brain, it was like, well, I guess it's over. You know, <laughs> Like we've had this one conflict, I guess we're done, you know, even though we've been together for, you know, how eight, seven, eight years at this point and, you know, but he would always just kind of know that that's maybe I never expressed that I needed to hear that. But now that he, I've sort of seen that pattern, I know that that is in the moment, like as we're coming back together to repair after a conflict, it does make me feel very safe to hear that. So 
Um, that's you talk about, a little bit about that in the book. Um, what are some other ways that we might, after a conflict, come back together and you know, pr- you know, to use our words like protect the bubble? I uh, actually felt myself have a visceral reaction to to hearing that um, because that is something that is for me included is so helpful to hear in those moments of conflict and those moments of separation and disconnection, which are also really natural. We can't always be fully present and attuned and even able to give supportive resources even to our long-term partners all of the time. So as, you know, connection ebbs and flows in relationships, which I'm learning is also quite natural, whenever for me there was any shift toward possibility of distance, of quiet, right? Definitely when there was conflict that I would have tried so desperately probably to avoid by just placating the situation. And if it was unavoidable and here it was, I very much like you went to that for me, that emotionally abandoned child who for very, you know, very multiple occasions throughout my childhood had a mom who gave me the silent treatment, who was ill-equipped herself to, you know, identify and navigate her very real feelings that she was upset by something that had happened. I did or didn't do whatever I expressed or didn't express and her own inability to create safety and retain that connection with me, even in moments when she was upset for me translated to all any and all distance is that same moment being reenacted again. So the visceral reaction I had is for how many of us that would be helpful to hear that disconnection and conflict doesn't mean the removal of the relationship or of love itself. And to get us there into those moments and you having the gift of Giovanni being so just intuitive to that, right? And chances are he was so intuitive to it because we're all so intuitive. If we're really able to connect, our nervous system is sensing Everyone else is around us. And the more attuned and safely connected, to be attuned to ourselves, that means I can't be on my spaceship. I can't be paying attention to the racing thoughts in my mind. I can't be paying attention to what someone else needs. I need to be paying attention to myself, right? And to my body. And when I am, and this is, I think, something that many of us might have experienced, we can tell when shifts happen outside of us. When we walk into that room and you're like, oh gosh, was there a fight in here? You know, like there was two yeah. people and like, you could just what happened? nothing's <laughs> being said, right? But you just yeah. feel what you're yeah. feeling. And I'm bringing this up. You're actually, you are feeling the energy. You're feeling probably two nervous systems that are shut down or threatened, right? Something did happen and your nervous system has sensed that. So sharing that to say, and this even goes back to this idea of embodiment, we all have that internal intuitive guidance. So few of us though are connected and are in that grounded space to be connected, to hear those inner sensations that are always giving us that information. And you had the gift of the moment, right? Where you have a partner who was able to, for whatever reason, right? Seemingly out of nowhere, he just knew, right? And that to me indicates that kind of inner sensing that he was able to act on. Though getting us there, just quickly talk about it. And this I think is a lot, a large point of where my new book Uh, How to Be the Love You Seek is really foundationally based why it is, while it is a book on relationships, the primary relationship, while we do talk a lot about how to, even this conversation I'm going to have with you right now, how to identify moments of reactivity, how to identify when I'm or my partner's in this nervous system state of reaction, how to have tools to interact with someone else or communicate, or I even have one section, how to have tough conversations, right? A lot of it is focused out, though the beginning of it is focused in is focused first and foremost on our relationship with ourselves. So I'm going to answer this question the same way. While maybe listeners are expecting me to give you the markers for how to know when someone else is, first we want to understand ourselves. 
because our ability to remain grounded in conflict is going to have all to do with my internal resources, my state of nervous system activation, and whether or not I'm in that calm, grounded, open state or not. It actually has nothing to do with anyone else yet. So this is where, and I think for a lot of us, we want to have these preventative or these tools, I should say, to use in the moment when really I'm going to be offering preventative states of awareness, meaning develop that relationship with your body. You know, if you are like me and you're able to identify way, I am not living present in my body. I don't even feel a body. I feel numb. Body, what body? I don't, I have no connection, right, with my emotions. Or maybe I'm always distracted. I know I'm always focused outward on that helper, right? So now the daily commitment, and it is daily, right? Rebuilding that focus back to myself, learning how to feel safe enough in a body so I can begin to attune to my states of nervous system activation. Because that's going to be the difference between when I'm in that explosive moment, I don't have control over how I'm going to react because I'm going to go down those same neural pathways. My body and mind will do the exact same thing it always did, whether it's screaming and yelling and tantruming or ignoring the person, right? Or, or going away on the spaceship or people pleasing, whatever it is that's wired right into us. So we want to begin to create safety in our body so that we can determine as our body is shifting into those states. Because when we are feeling threatened, we're not going to be a collaborative partner. We're not going to be able to be open to what someone else is saying. We're probably shouldn't even be engaging right in moments of repair in that time. So learning about ourself will help us determine when we're reaching that point of no return in our conflict, right? Where our heart rate is getting so elevated and I'm getting ready to scream or yell the thing that I don't mean or do the thing that I don't mean. That means I've taken the time and consistency to know myself enough so that I can be responsible for how I'm showing up, so that I'm showing up as calm, as grounded, and as regulated as possible. So that means a lot of self-exploration, a lot of self-connection, um, a lot of commitment to rebuilding that connection right, of attention to my body and to my different nervous system states so that I can remain grounded. And then, of course, we can begin to witness in our loved ones while it might look different, right? We might detach or flee. Someone else might explode. We can begin to understand and notice when they're in a reactive state. Because to have a successful conversation or a communication or a moment of repair, that means it's not just when we're calm and grounded or when it makes sense in our time in life, right? We've just maybe got ourselves so ready to have an important conversation with our partner and we're ready and we've rehearsed it and we're going to have the conversation to repair the argument from a couple nights ago. And then our partner comes home from work, stressed out beyond belief because something that happened at work, right? Now probably isn't the time because to, again, have a communication where we're both on the same side of the issue, hearing each other's different perspectives, not exploding in ways that we once did, both of us have to be in that calm, grounded state. So it could benefit our relationship the more aware we are of where our partners are. Because I know for me too, so many times when I'm in a reactive moment, I just want you to hear me right now. I don't care that you're not able to. I don't care that you're distracted. I don't care that you're running low on resources and are you know somewhere else entirely. I need to be heard right now. But that's not going to benefit the relationship itself. So it means building, again, the foundation of self-knowledge so I can know how calm and grounded I am. Having that space where I'm able to identify kind of where my loved one might be and then retaining that commitment to doing my part, finding my grounding so I can show up for conversation when you're ready and then we can engage in that negotiation where both parties are heard, 
right? Both parties' feelings are valid. And then whatever it is that was the point of issue can be discussed with both person's best interest in mind. Yeah, and I think needing to be heard right now is just another way we were talking about before is a way for you to dissipate the stress. Like I have this stress, I have this conflict inside and I need to get it out and I need to get it out right now without any uh, consideration, we'll say, for for your other partner, which I think, um, you know, is a, is a part of, of maturing. And in, in the book you talk about um, re- when you're when you're talking about reconnecting with our own bodies, you put a stat in there, which I thought was shocking uh, 75% of Americans are dehydrated. And you, you were talking about all the, you were talking about your own story with alcohol and sleep scheduling and and sugar. Um, but that shocked me and it doesn't take a lot to become dehydrated. You know, you, you just need like a 2% decrease in total volume, uh, you know, sort of total, uh, you know, total, total water volume, uh, to be considered dehydrated. But just think about your ability to manage, you know, think about your frontal lobe, which is sort of the parent brain, if you will, like to say it very simplistically, you know, the part of the job of that parent brain is to inhibit some of those lower uh, reptilian primitive, uh, you know, versions or, you know, parts of our, our, our brain that are more, um, you know, fear-based, maybe anger-based, um, reactive and if you don't have, if your cells are dehydrated, like what is your capacity truly? What is your, like ask yourself, I mean, anyone who's listening, I was asking myself, if I'm dehydrated, what is my capacity for stress um, and inter- like internal conflict versus when I'm fully hydrated, fully slept, you know, bodies free of alcohol, let's say, you know, you talk about your own story of like consuming processed foods and even just growing up in kind of a traditional Italian family and I'm speaking for you here so feel free to you know f- fill in the fill in the gaps but I've been in those kind of traditional Italian traditional Greek traditional Portuguese sort of families where it's rude if you don't finish the entire plate and then go back for a second serving so I um I would love for you to maybe expand on what it means to reconnect with our bodies a through hydration which again completely shocked me that number 75% of Americans and then maybe through your own story of reconnecting with your body through regular sleep schedules um, maybe limiting or choosing when alcohol was going to be consumed and like the food choices that you're making understanding that this is Nicole's path it's not what everybody is going to do or everybody's going to find useful but I think that there is a lot of value in in sort of your own discoveries and your own story I created um, in How to Beat Yourself workbook is the first place you'll see it. I made, I adapt it from uh, Abraham Maslow's um, uh, hierarchy of needs. I made a more simplified version of what I call an authentic needs pyramid. And I'm bringing that up because um, much as Abraham Maslow theorizes in terms of we have these basic needs and I similarly put our physical needs at the bottom. And then we have once our physical needs are consistently met, then we can begin to tend to our emotional needs, right? For safety, for support, for individual self-expression. And then we can evolve to our more spiritual needs, our creativity, you know, our, our um, again, that essence that makes each of us us. And the reason, again, I just want to kind of explain the pyramid. It's this idea that we can't fully, I'm going to simplify this really quickly. We can't be us if our body isn't safe and regulated, if we're not connect it with the emotions that live in our body that, again, are evolutionary messengers with how we're experiencing the world around us, we're never going to be able to 
be who we are. So to speak to your point, while everyone's journey is very individual in terms of our body, I really simplify what I think are core basic human needs. And there's four of them. Water is one of them. Nutrients are one of them. Our cell needs some cells need some sort of energy from somewhere. Typically, the food that we're eating is how we get nutrients. And then just as much as our muscles need to expend energy to move, one of the third need would be movement. On the other side of that spectrum, they equally need to rest, to have moments of sleep where our body goes into deep repair, to have moments where our muscles are maxed out. And after, you know, we physically exert ourselves, we need to rest to recuperate and replenish in addition to, again, the more deeply restorative repair that happens when we sleep at night. So as far as I'm concerned, doesn't matter where you live or what your childhood looked like, we all still have those same four needs into our adulthood. And it took me really understanding and learning outside of my clinical programming, well into my clinical work with other individuals and my own journey on this other side of the clinical couch. I mean, I started therapy in my early 20s um, for a lifetime of what was diagnosed as generalized anxiety with then panic disorder that began in my 20s. Um, was Medicaid, it was on the other side. So having been on on both sides of struggle, of emotional struggle, I wasn't aware of how much the body was and the imbalances in our human body might be playing a role in our ability to navigate our emotions, to navigate stress, and especially in the manifestation of all of the different types of quote-unquote anxiety disorders, right? Really, again, if I want to simplify it, a lot of what we're experiencing is a byproduct of a dysregulated body, of a body who's not getting the nutrients it needs, who's not getting the water, the hydration that it needs, who's not getting the expenditure of energy or the reparative moments. And I know for me, I mean, I spent three decades of my life, even though I was an athlete through most of us, right? Through most of it with this idea that, oh, I'm caring about my physical body because I'm moving it. So in reality, the food I was eating was inflammatory, was highly processed, um, was damaging my gut, which we now know plays a role and communicates with our brain. It plays a role in terms of how we feel and how we navigate our emotions. My sleep has been, for as long as I can remember, terrible. As a child, I would lie in bed awake at night, fearful, listening for bangs that I thought was a robber coming into my home, always afraid that I might wake up the next morning and my mom would no longer be alive because there was a lot of health anxiety in my home. So my sleep was greatly impacted. So really the list goes on. So for a lot of us, I think we're making these daily choices. Most of our lifestyle habits, as far as I'm concerned, are based on the things that we've learned or seen in our childhood, just like you were sharing or kind of brought up my experience of coming from a heavily Italian-American influenced home. I came to realize well into my adulthood, a lot of my food habits were still based on what I learned in childhood. Everything from I have protocols or I had about ideas of what types of food were appropriate for breakfast. And that was different than the type of food that was appropriate for lunch. And you couldn't have a lunch food for breakfast or definitely not a dinner, right? And then times of day. I had all these you know, times of day where meals were supposed to happen. I had all of this protocol too around eating with others versus alone, coming from, again, a family where dinner time was family time. It was the same time every night. We all sat around a table, whether or not we talked to each other or not, right? It was this structured approach of eating. And I saw remnants of that. I only wanted to eat if others were eating. If others were, weren't eating, I might not eat. And then I'd be irritable because I didn't feed myself. Right? I had all of these conditioned learnings around food, around my sleep habits, around so much that I wasn't aware 
were impacting how I dealt with stress. And I think the large majority of us as adults are running around in under-resourced bodies, bodies, as I call it, locked in survival mode, whose basic needs, those four physical needs I listed, aren't getting consistently met. And what that's then going to continue to signal to our body and our nervous system in particular is I'm not actually safe, right? I'm dehydrated. My body needs rest, right? It has so much energy in it, it's exploding. That's not going to create that calm, balanced, grounded ability to navigate emotions, let alone express ourselves, let alone express our creativity. Because what our body is actually telling our mind behind the scenes is that, no, you're actually not safe. Now is not a moment for relaxation. You cannot be focused on this right now because my body continues to signal my mind based on those consistently unmet needs that that foundation isn't in place, that its focus for survival needs to be on my physical survival. So I can't tend to my emotions the way that I want. I can't contact my creativity Right. And I have to, I'm just locked again in this survival mode. Yeah. And, you know, I think for women as well, you lay on um, having a menstrual cycle for, mm-hmm. you know, a good 40 years. And of course, there can be vitamin deficiencies, iron deficiencies, all of these things that can all lead into mood and affect changes, certainly um, as well. And you, know, you talk about these four, you know, water, nutrients, movement, and rest. Once those, let's assume that those are being met. So we've made some positive changes to our sleep habits. We're consistently going to bed at the same time. We're eating primarily whole foods. We can just stay diet agnostic you know, to simplify the conversation. Uh, and then there's some basic amount of movement that's happening where we're expending an appropriate amount of energy relative to, let's say, the calories that we're taking in and the, you know, the amount of activity that we want to be doing and that we're not dehydrated. The next piece to that. that you spoke about is um, once sort of we have this body consciousness, you sort of talked about this as as, um, body consciousness and even maybe even we can loop in interoception in there, sort of like feeling into the body, like how we're feeling. Uh, I think that that allows us then to kind of tune into, as you were saying, our emotions, our, you know, our habitual behavior so that we can make now we can start to make better decisions or new decisions, we'll say. We'll say new decisions that will serve who it is that we truly are, not the archetypes that we've constructed to make mom and dad happy, not some of these, you know, not the overachiever, but our um, our, our authentic selves, like maybe even getting into, um, you know, the, I, I even like sort of hesitate to say it, but even into sort of the soul realm, you know, like talking about like what the soul is. Um you talk, so can you talk a little bit, let's actually talk about the soul because, um, I really appreciated in the book, um, that you talked about this idea of like, you know, you were sort of like rolling your eyes at the idea of soul in the beginning. And I was like, Oh God, that's so, I so resonate with that because it's so hard to quantify. Right. So it's like, I've always hung my, my religion has always been science. It's like, if you can't mechanistically explain it, it doesn't, you know, then it doesn't exist. But of course, that would be hubris. That would be silly to think that the only things that are worth explaining are the things that are mechanistically explainable, right? Of course, we know there's magic in in uh, in healing. There's magic in life that are that's in some ways just unexplainable by pathways and mechanistic data. There's sort of a vitalism, if you will, um, to what it means to be human. And so, I really loved your um, your leaning into the quantum physics 
and the explanation of the soul. And I was, I was hoping you might explain that uh, for all of the, for all of my listeners that kind of lean in the same way that I do uh, or have leaned, I should say, I don't necessarily lean there now, but so with that, speak to us about the soul. Yeah, very much relating um, to you, Stephanie, and your experience as a scientist. I mean, I actually spent decades of my, while I was going to school for my PhD, I, I held a job outside um, to, you know, pay for my day to day and everything. And I was a research coordinator. So I was heavily, I love the idea of research. Um, I have a couple published studies. I published my dissertations, so all the things. So I loved research. I loved kind of seeing, understanding, having this whole rich world of which to apply right, this more objective understanding. So, and a little bit of my initial hesitancy around the concept of soul was really grounded in my, again, my individual early experience of organized religion. Um, I grew up in a Catholic household and was made to go to church every Sunday. And it was never anything that really resonated with me. Outside of that, nothing really was talked about in terms of Catholic, you know, kind of religion. So there was a lot of lacking information, except for this idea that I had to go to this very boring experience <laughs> once a week and it just didn't do it for me. So for me, I kind of merged this idea with soul. Once I saw that it, or so I thought, lacked scientific evidence, I kind of threw it out until I very much went through what I now know was the dark night of the soul. I talk about it in my first book, How to Do the Work. Um, when I did not yet have the language for it, what it felt like to me was just an emotional breakdown, rock bottom, inexplicably so. When again, I didn't have, like I was sharing earlier, I didn't have the thing to hang my issue on, right? There so seemingly shouldn't have been anything to explain why I felt so unfulfilled when I kind of finally hit that last checkbox, right? I did, I accomplished everything. I had a relationship. I had a successful practice. I was in my hometown where I thought I wanted to live. I had friend groups and, you know, around me. Why was I feeling so disconnected and unfulfilled? And I didn't have the language to understand. This all goes back again full circle. Why? Because I reached the end of my self-identity, right? When I didn't have anything else to, to, to validate, I was feeling that empty abyss um, that I was describing earlier. So what I was feeling was, is now just applying this language of the soul, I was having a kind of soul breakthrough moment where there was still an essence in me that was knowing that every way that I've created my life wasn't fulfilling me because I wasn't a present being in it. I had been so far away in my spaceship while I was in action, right? Leaving that same home that had the partner there, going to the office, right? I wasn't embodied in my essence. I was so filtered again through all these like, expectations and ideas of what I thought everyone needed me to be. But that's why I felt so empty because my soul, who never left the building, if you will, right, was behind the scenes screaming, saying, this is, you're exhausted. Your needs are overstepped. You don't have any energetic resources. You don't even know what you, who you are, what you want, what you want to do with the next three moments of your day, let alone like what you're really passionate about. Right? I used to hear these concepts thrown around, purpose, passion. Right? I, don't know. I guess that genetic chip missed me because I never felt purposeful. I never felt passionate, even though, again, I march toward accomplishments, I would never have described it as coming from an inner place, which is what I always assumed was met. And now I understand is met when we say those words, right? Because it's coming from inside. So what I was really having was that breakthrough moment of, wow, this is so not aligned because you're not living in your full self-expression. You're watering yourself down. And once I then dove into other types of research, um, a lot in quantum physics, um, what just keeps popping in my mind is, is I think Albert Einstein's spooky action at a distance, I think he termed it, 
Because interestingly enough, I'm now coming to find that this whole quantum world, there actually is research. There actually is science. There actually is something called an observer effect, which really simply means that when we are watching a thing, right, we're studying, you know, something outside of us, we're actually influencing that which we're studying. So we are our participant in all of our interactions and all of our experiences. Well, how are we a participant with something that's so distant from us? One might be asking, that's what you meant by spooky action at a distance, right? We are impacting it because energetically, right? That unseen force, that indivisible essence that I described earlier actually can be mapped onto our energy. We are energy and matter. Yes, I'm looking at a physical, beautiful creature that is you, Stephanie, right? You have a physical kind of appearance so you are also energy, um, energy running through our bodies, chakra systems. Some people might hear. Either way, we have science that actually does back that the human experience is infused with energy as well. So without going down to the whole, what can be complicated and confusing, you know, kind of realm of science, of quantum science, I should say, we do now know, and again, to define soul, we could define it as our unique energetic, or how I define it, I should say, is our unique energetic expression, which, yes, is being channeled through our physical existence. And that's why we can feel it. Um, I like to localize our, our main point of feeling, especially this kind of inner essence, and I'm touching my chest right here right now, is within our heart. Because um, now I've been introduced to a whole world of science that doesn't just prioritize and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, celebrate the brain for so long i was oh the brain is everything the brain isn't actually everything at all the stomach like i mentioned earlier where our nutrients are being absorbed is part of the picture you know it's even actually stronger than our brain our heart our heart scientifically has been studied to emit energy again i'm really simplifying electromagnetic energy even to a greater distance than our brain they've been had incredible studies i mean i really went down a rabbit hole in terms of heart transplants and our ability of cells even in our heart to remember short-term, long-term, to have kind of things embedded within them, in, in the cells of our heart. So our heart is so energetically powerful, and in my opinion, is the kind of home base, if you will, of that soul-based connection. This might be, this is just my observation, but there's been centuries, you know, we talk about like love stories and we talk, everyone always talks about it like coming from the chest, coming from the heart, right? There's something, you know, you speak when we say we speak from the heart, you know, it means that you're really truthfully speaking, you're speaking from your essence. And I think that there's, there's something, there, there's something to that, um, that, as you said, I don't think is, is. Uh, worthy of dismissal just because we don't have a mechanistic explanation for it. There's that, I think that there's something uh, important around holding space for magic, right? And whatever, and and maybe at some point there'll be someone will be able to say, well, this is the pathway. It goes like this, and this is changes the energetic frequency, and then da, 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 you know they'll be able to say something in terms of how that process happens. But I think that there is, um, I think leaving room for magic if we can maybe. Um, I would like to leave room for magic anyway, because I think that it gives me hope. And, you know, you talk about this uh, in the book about feeling joy or thinking about something, you know, holding, touching your heart and feeling, um, I believe you call it joy, uh, sort of, and how that floods and how that feels in your body. And I did the exercise um, that you had walked uh, us through in the book. And I remember 
feeling, you know, feeling joy, feeling kind of tingly in my feet, like just kind of just, you know, feeling energy moving. And it was, you know, I sort of had a thought that it was like, how great would this be if I could just, you know, encapsulate this on a daily basis, like several times a day, like how much better would I feel? Of course, the answer is I would feel a lot better. Um, but, and these are very simple practices that are very low cost, right? There's very low barriers to entry for doing some of the exercises that you outline in the book, which I really, uh, really, really appreciate as well. I want to even just take this a bit step further because I love that we're kind of, um, say speak from the heart, right? Kind of communicate honestly. I'm going to make another bit of a step in my opinion, and this again is the basis of how to be the love you seek, that's what love is, being authentic, creating that space, not only for our own authentic self-expression, but creating the space for someone else to safely be themselves. Love isn't actually anything outside that comes in and overtakes us. In my opinion, love is being connected to our heart and being loving to someone else is, is not making them shift or change or adapt in any way. It's actually living in acceptance and in presence with who they are and how they are. Of course, very few of us, I think, are in that type of relationship now because we're still going to bring it full circle, operating on all of these, you know, adaptations, all of these deep rooted feelings of unworthiness that continue to, to, to drive how we think we have to be to maintain these connections. But in my opinion, to become the love we seek means to become heart based because that's actually what love is. It, it's not, again, anything that's going to come infiltrate us from outside. It's creating that space of safety and secure connection within our relationships and we're all seeking and as I did kind of looking for the ideal person right to kind of give me that feeling that you're we're describing you were able to successfully generate internally which is I think a necessity of the human experience if you're at least in, I'll say just just from my own opinion I think that I've had you know my fair share of feeling fearful and angry and scared and some of those core uh, wounds that we've been talking about, that feeling of abandonment, feeling of, you know, not being good enough, smart enough, worthy enough, not enough. And not to say that we're trying to get rid of those things, um, but I think that there can be a healthy serving, if you will, of the joy and the purpose and the passion and the playfulness and the creativity and all of the things that I think so many, at least my women, I, I intuitively feel my, and I hear this, I, I'll say it's intuitive, but I also f get this feedback from our from our help desk, a lot of the women are like, I know you're saying the word joy. Like I understand the English word. I, it's J O Y, but I don't know what it means. Like I can get cerebrally the word that you're talking about, but somatically, I don't know what that is. Um, and so I, I, I love the work that you've done. I love, I love this book. I think this is going to help so many women and men, of course, and, and, and all walks of life. Um, it's currently, it's currently out, I believe. And you have, do you still have the, the community, the self heal, the self healing community that you run? Do you still have that? So yeah, how to be yeah. the love you seek will be out um, November 28th. It'll be officially published. Um, so out in the world, though it is on pre-order now, um, it just won't be delivered until publication day. And yes, I still have the self healer circle membership, our global community. Uh, every month we join together, not only in community, but to explore all of these different topics in healing. This month, actually, we've been deep diving into self-forgiveness as our topic. And we have live events um, and, you know, presentations, community check-ins, all sorts of things. So anyone who is interested in that, we have selfhealerscircle.com. You can jump on the wait list. It will open again in September. It opens three times a year for enrollment. The community is absolutely amazing. And of course, all of the different places to pre-order. Again, a reminder, it's on pre-order until November, How to Be the Love You Seek, 
We have howtobethelovyouseek.com with all the different places, international, somewhat included until more come in, which will happen over the next coming months. And we'll update that, all the different places to purchase a pre-order if you're interested. And then, of course, across all social media. I want to mention all of the free resources. At this point, I think we're on every social media platform there is, um, you know, talking and having these conversations. We have incredible communities across all of the platforms. So however you consume your content, um, give a type, the holistic psychologist, you will likely find our information, our community um, of healing wherever it is. And again, free accessible is always going to be a priority. Thank you so much for spending the time today, Nicole. Congratulations on the book. And I'm wishing you all the success in the world. This was just a wonderful conversation yet again. Uh, thank you for your focus and your time and um, just your genius today. Thank you. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.